thought the sermon was 15 minutes down the road and here, here we are. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we want to thank you for your word. And I pray that your word would do a work in our midst this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit through the word of preaching. Amen. I want to apologize. I'm going to be a little bit note-tied today. But I also want to thank you so much for attending today because some of you must have known I'd be talking about evangelism and here you are anyways. I say this because evangelism makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But if that's the case for you, here's the good news. There is hope. Would you believe I was actually very excited about speaking on this topic today? I was jumping up and down. And that's quite a change, if you know me, from 30, 40 years ago, big change. Back then, my mode of evangelism was something we call pay and pray, which means stay anonymous, pay loads of money to the church so the church can broadcast the gospel in print, TV, airwaves, and then pray that people would hear and be convicted. Now, fast forward to 2023, and I'm holding a Christian discipleship course in my own home. How's that for a change of approach? But for me to reach that place, my view, my understanding of evangelism had to undergo a pretty serious makeover. So I propose to share a bit of my personal journey with you in case you can relate to some of it. And it'll be in a succession of scenes. And we start with scene number one. I started, like most people, learning about something called the Great Commission. In the Gospel of Matthew, it goes like this. Jesus said to the apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. These were the last words of Jesus before he was taken away. The words, in a sense, the words that would still be ringing in our ears if we had heard them directly from him. Could these have been Jesus' most important words? At this point, the skeptic jumps up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Jesus was talking to the apostles, wasn't it? Wasn't he? So the Great Commission was not given to every Christian, was it? Uh, fair enough, but there is a major catch. Because you see, the Great Commission itself, the Great Commission itself is one of the commands that Jesus gave to his disciples. So if the apostles were to teach, the apostles were to teach the disciples to observe all the commands that Jesus had commanded them, well, then they also had to teach the disciples to observe the command to make disciples of all nations. And there is no getting around it. You see what I mean? We're not apostles. Many of us are disciples of Jesus. So we're supposed to have been taught to observe everything that Jesus told the apostles to do, including the command to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them. Which brings us to scene number two. At some point, I was introduced to a new concept, new to me anyways, personal 
evangelism. What that was supposed to be was one-on-one -on -one evangelism. In other words, evangelism is that you actually do yourself. Instead of asking your church organization to uh, do it for you in exchange for money and hopefully some prayers, uh, well, surely that was the kind of evangelism that Jesus was talking about. That's where I, I started to have some misgivings. Uh, some Christians that I know and that you know, they say, well, Jesus said to do it, and that's good enough for me. Thank you very much. But I wasn't like that. I always had to ask why. But some things about evangelism did not make sense to me. And furthermore, to be perfectly honest, I feared that my introverted personality would be completely unsuited to the task and would bring me great embarrassment. And you know what? Maybe that was the root reason behind all the other reasons. So, but maybe I could have had a more constructive approach to the whole thing. Uh, I should have taken a page from the book of the Christian astrophysicist Hugh Ross. Do you know him? I found out not long ago that Hugh Ross was on the autism spectrum. So there's a man who had to overcome some pretty serious obstacles to become the renowned evangelist that he is today. I saw an interview on the web where he said, it's a miracle I'm married. And the host asked him, well, what was it about you that interested your wife? And he answered, I think, it was my commitment to scripture and Christianity and evangelism. She saw in me a passion to see people come to Christ. She also saw that I was willing to be coached on how to socially interact with people so they could come to Christ. And you know, that's something that's encouraging. Everybody I know who's on the spectrum, who's high functioning can gain the social skills if they're willing to work on it. And it's gonna take years, it's gonna take decades. It's taken me decades. But if you're willing to work on it, it can happen. When I became a Christian, I realized I'm going to have to engage people because my role as a Christian is to bring people who don't know him to faith in Christ. Then the host asked uh, Hugh Ross again, does the message of Christ have an added dimension to it for someone who's on the spectrum, the autism spectrum? To this, Hugh Ross answered, it does in the sense that I think it gives you the grace and the humility to be helped by neurotypical people. What happened to me when I became a Christian is I realized I had to be an evangelist. And to be an evangelist, I had to develop better social skills. And it was my wife that really helped me to develop those skills so that I could be more effective. I saw it as a command. I realized the message here is redemption and evangelism. Now scene number three. <clears throat> In 2009, I was one of the Emmaus delegates uh, who was sent to the Second Synod of Anik. And my understanding of evangelism was going to change forever. Uh, you have to understand, Anik was a very young movement at this point, and Anik was under high scrutiny, and Anik was quite eager to dispel the false rumor that they were just a safe refuge for disgruntled ex-members of the Anglican Church of Canada. No, thundered moderator. What's his name? Don Harvey. Christianity was never meant to be safe. No, Anik was going to be aggressively evangelistic. 
and the new Anic churches seem to have gotten the message. evangelistic work of the church members and the ways that God opened closed doors and allowed people to be touched by the gospel. In fact, I gave the presentation for Emmaus after all the others, and I was uh, struck by the fact that um, we didn't have anything special to report on the evangelistic front, but all those other churches had begun to pound and pound the following facts into my slow to understand brain. And those were the facts that were pounded into my brain. First of all, number one, the real work of evangelism is done by God. eager to get on with it, he will not proceed without our participation. All these Anic churches would have had nothing to report if church members had not taken evangelistic initiatives. You see, God never showed up in a vacuum. So, but that was just me coming to terms with something that the scriptures had been saying all along. There was nothing new there. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Next slide, please. Here it goes. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And remember, that is Paul speaking. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and who he waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. Also check out Acts chapter 16. And that's a practical example of how God operates. On a Sabbath day, we went outside the gate. This is Luke talking in Acts about Paul and his party. We went outside, we sat down, we spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. <clears throat> the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it started with Paul speaking. And it ended with the Lord opening the heart of Lydia to pay attention to what had been spoken. So Paul understood that somebody had to speak out. In Romans 10, Paul actually 
belabors the point. He says, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, the smart Alec in me wants to say, come on, Paul, that's a no-brainer. I'll tell you how they are to hear without someone preaching. Let God himself speak from heaven with a loud voice and let him cause everyone to hear in their own language as happened on the day of Pentecost. There you go. But God is not doing that. And Paul is not telling us why. He's just describing how God is operating. And it's frustrating. And I want to say, Father, I don't understand your methods. Why aren't you taking over the whole operation? Why bother with us? Why are you allowing us to slow you down? But who am I to tell God how he should operate? Actually, we should be very uh, grateful that he graciously informed us about his methods. And that is so true. Once I recognized God's methods in evangelism, there were some huge takeaways for me. Let me explain two of those takeaways. Takeaway number one, the father insists on partnering with us. See, as much as he values drawing people to Jesus, he values the relationship building that comes from partnering with people that he's already called to Jesus. And we too should value this opportunity for relationship building. And let me ask point blank, do we want to be intimate with our Father in heaven? Who doesn't want that? Well, I think I absolutely have the key for you. Let's get alongside him in the work he is doing. Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I am working, he said. And that, that, uh, and that means helping to proclaim the gospel to all creation. Ouch. That sounds scary, right? Well, it is scary. There's no denying it is scary. But there's only one possible response to that. How badly do we want intimacy with God? Do we want it badly enough that we're willing to stick a few toes outside of our comfort zones? This is not a safe sermon. What price tag are we willing to put on a relationship of complicit activity with God. Some years ago, my wife, Jose, was looking into a course on evangelism. It was called Experiencing God from Barnaby Ministries. And at, at the time, I blasted the course. There were some things I didn't like in it, but I think I was majoring on the minors and probably minoring on the majors. As I look back on things, I find myself agreeing 100% with the the basic premise of the course, which is this. If we want to have an experience of God, an experience that will allow us to see what he does, and in seeing what he does will allow us to see who he is and what he's like, well, then we must share in his saving activity. Here's a bold question. Can we compel God, so to speak, to come out of hiding and do something for us so we can see what he's like? And the answer is yes, we absolutely can. I'm being a little provocative here, but yes, we can. If we come out of our own hiding places 
and we get busy with the work of evangelism, you can be sure that God's going to sit up and take notice. And he's going to show up because we will be expressing the very heart of God. We will be aligning ourselves, our words, our hands, our feet with God's overriding purpose for all creation. And that's takeaway number one. Number two, from the Annick Conference, takeaway number two, we don't have to worry about God's ability to draw people to Jesus. And that I find so liberating. That just unleashed uh, something in me. It's an important point because the task of reaching people for Christ can seem so hopeless. Think about it. Generation X is completely illiterate as far as the Bible is concerned. And the little they may have heard about Christianity consists of slurs from the mainstream media. The whole of North America seems to be sinking into some kind of neo-paganism. And when we stop to look at ourselves, well, we get even more discouraged. We are untrained, ineloquent, no tide, unknowledgeable, and we're all too aware of our personal flaws and limitations. How do we even stand a chance? Moses was sent to the arrogant Pharaoh of Egypt. He was also sent to a nation of slaves, all of them uneducated and cynical. And Moses said, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. And do you know what healed me of my pessimism? Jose showed me a website called One for Israel, which contains many testimonies of faith from Jews who discovered Jesus. They call Jesus Yeshua. And it's fascinating because you wonder, what could be trickier than to bring a Jew to faith in Christ? You start listening to one of the stories and you think, oh boy, here's a lost cause if I ever saw one. And then you keep listening. And when it's over, you think, well, how about it? God found a way to get through to that person. People are so incredibly different from each other. And that's when you realize it's not so much a matter of what words the person has heard. Yes, God will use the words, but he uses them in ways that we could never have foreseen or imagined as he works a unique path in the person's journey to faith. So I urge you to check out some personal testimonies of faith on the web. It almost changed my life. They all speak to our father's amazing competence at drawing people to Jesus. And I, I, I believe God cannot wait to impress us as we try him out. God is the one who causes, remember, causes flowers to bloom in the desert. He reveals himself as the God of the impossible again and again in scriptures. And that being said, the quality of our efforts is not unimportant. And if our hearts are in the right place, we're going to be like Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist. We're going to work to improve. But ultimately, God doesn't look at our competence as much as he, he looks at our hearts. He knows our frame. And he can even take our lemons and turn them into lemonade. That brings us to scene number four. The gospel never made as much inroads as it did during the great Christian revivals of the past centuries in the UK and the US. One day I found out again through Jose. Thank you so much, Jose. 
I found out what lay behind the great revivals. And that was great movements of repentance and great movements of prayer. And as I've explained before, we're talking extraordinary prayer, united prayer, persistent prayer. And I think that fits perfectly with today's scripture, reading from John 15. And let's dissect the passage a little bit. We're there already. In verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So conclusion, bearing fruit is a big deal. It's the proof that we are Jesus' disciples. But what kind of fruit are we talking about? We have to keep reading. In verse 5, Jesus said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Conclusion. The fruit that we are talking about is the fruit that we cannot bear apart from Jesus. In John 14.10, Jesus said, The Father, the Father who dwells in me, does his works. And just as Jesus could do his Father's works, because his Father was dwelling in him, we in turn are invited to do Jesus' works, which are the Father's works, by dwelling in Jesus and he in us. But what does it mean to abide in Jesus? There's always one more question, right? Keep reading verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, abide in my love if you keep my commandments. You will abide in my love. Conclusion, we abide in Jesus when we observe all that he has commanded us, including the command to make disciples of all nations. And this involves repentance because none of us ever started out obeying the commandments of Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Conclusion, yes, we abide in Jesus when we allow his words to take up residence in our lives. But notice there's a second part to that verse. It says, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. So this is where Jesus stresses the importance of prayer with a promise of wish fulfillment. Uh, what is it we could properly wish to ask for? How about asking that we bear much fruit indeed? And this certainly includes the new disciples that we are commanded to make of all nations. So what's holding us back? That brings us to scene number five. I'm not completely satisfied still. Father, I still don't understand your methods, but I think I have a few clues. In the parable of the talents, a man is going on a journey a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted to them his property. You know the parable. After a long time, the master returned. Uh, yep, the master returned to his servants and these servants came forward to present the fruits of their trade. And the master said to his prof profitable servants, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. And of course, the master is Jesus. We understand that. Jesus who will return to reward his saints, the saints who have faithfully discharged the small responsibilities they were given. 
But what is the reward? Retirement? And a generous pension? No, in fact, if you read carefully, it's quite the opposite. It looks like the master is going to give his servants a far, far greater share of the same responsibilities he had given them in the first place. And it doesn't look like punishment, does it? The Lord has given us the responsibility to work at growing his kingdom. Is it possible that our reward is going to be more of the same responsibilities? But no, that's impossible, is it? The kingdom will stop growing when Jesus returns, right? Well, who says? Who says? Let me see if I can smash that idea with a verse from Isaiah chapter 9. Somebody's doing a sterling job in the back, thank you. For us, for to us a child is born. Guess who that is? To us a child is given. And the government, the rule, the reign, the kingdom, shall be upon his shoulder of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we all know that the Father's kingdom will last forever. That's not an issue here. There's something quite different this verse is saying. The verse promises that the increase of his government will never end. But seriously, what else would you expect from the great God that we have? Do you really expect our great God to stop working? And to settle perhaps on a cloud, playing the harp like the rest of us? Now, maybe that's not the point. Maybe that's not the point that speaks to you the most loudly today. Maybe you were more compelled by the points I made about relationship. So let me conclude by pressing a little bit into those points about relationship. Father, can I watch you? I'm so proud of you, Dad. You're awesome. The things you are doing are out of this world. And you do them with such wisdom and care. I can't wait to be able to build things like you do. I love to be with you and to learn from you. Dad, <clears throat> big sigh. Is there any way I could possibly help you? Next slide. Father answers, I'm so glad you asked. It's not that I really need your help, son or daughter, but I love you. And I'm overjoyed at the prospect of working together with you. In fact, I promise I will never lay hands on this project again, unless you're by my side. Don't worry that you don't get everything perfect. I'll patch up your glitches. And they won't even show. Next slide. You're doing great, son or daughter. I have big hopes for you, you know. Your big brother, Jesus, will inherit the family business. And I would like you to inherit with him. We can be partners forever. Next slide. Dad, I can't believe we're doing this together. Look at what we built. Dad, for as long as I live, I can't imagine myself doing anything else 
in the company of anybody else, you're the best. Love, son or daughter. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word for us today. We thank you, Lord, for uh, bringing us this balance in our life where as Christians who, as, as your followers, we worship you and uh, we grow in you. And at the same time, we share that which we have received with others. Thank you for this, uh, for this reminder, the thorough and uh, broad reminder um, about evangelism in our lives. Ensure, Lord, that we would never feel afraid or ashamed of it. And above all, pray, Lord, that um, you will speak to each one of us to to sense, to understand from you, to hear from you what our, each person's specific role is in this world um, um, task of evangelism and where our place is. We commit this to you and we look forward to the fruit in our own hearts and our own lives, which will come out of this. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point, I would like to invite you as God's people to respond to hearing his word through, through voiced prayers um, of adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, if you would like to pray during this time, unmute your microphone if you're on Zoom and turn your camera. Well, you, can, you don't need to do that, that, to do that, but unmute your microphone and pray and then turn the microphone um, off. You can also use the chat function to request prayer and hopefully somebody will check on the Zoom if, um, if anybody is uh, putting any chat prayers.
Precious Father, thank you so much for this message. Sometimes we're like kids who choose to play games rather than work with a precious loving Father that loves us and calls us to partner with Him and work together in love. Lord, help us to come to you. Help us to respond to you. Help us to work with you. We pray this in Jesus.